we're going through the wisdom books, the wisdom teachings in the Bible, the books of Ecclesiastes and Proverbs. Today we find ourselves in Proverbs chapter 15. We're not even halfway through Proverbs yet. And it's a very appropriately titled message. It's Vegetables with Love and a Side of Rebuke. Oh, I can't wait for this. Let's wave goodbye to our kids. So thanks, kids, for coming in. We'll see you. All right. They're so cute. I feel so old, but they're so cute. All right. All right, let's put up. Let's start with vegetables with love. This is out of Proverbs chapter 15. Let me read this for us. Can we pop this up on the screen, Levi? Can we do that? There we go. Better a small serving of vegetables with love than a fattened calf with hatred. What a cool old proverb. Now, a little background information for you here, okay? Many of us in this room actually like vegetables. Some of you might be vegan or vegetarian. You're the kind of person that will go into a restaurant and order a salad on purpose. I am not one of those people, but some of you are people like that. Back in the day when this proverb was written, that was not the case. Vegetables were considered the food of the poor. Vegetables were something that you ate when you didn't have anything better to eat. But a fatted calf that's mentioned in that verse, totally different. A fatted calf was considered a feast. That's why when Jesus tells the the parable of the prodigal son, when the son came back to his senses and reunited with his father and came home, he killed the fatted calf. That meant there was a celebration and they were going to serve the best meal possible which wasn't vegetables, by the way. It was a fatted calf. So basically, this verse is saying something to the effect of better a plate full of Brussels sprouts with love than a feast where there is none. That's what this verse is saying. It's a very similar, it's very similar actually to a verse in Proverbs chapter 17, verse 1, which I want to read for us too. Better a dry crust with peace and quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. These verses are both about one thing. They're about toxic versus non-toxic environments. I, um, I had an unusual experience. Um, a neighbor that had moved into my neighborhood about five years ago um, stopped by my house, and it was surprising because about five years ago, he was a complete jerk to me. Just I'm just being honest with you. Like such a jerk, I, I didn't even have any words for him. I just kind of shook my head and looked at him, and in my mind, I'm going, wow, you're such a jerk and I can't hear anything you're saying because you're such a jerk. Okay, one of those, you know, situations. He stopped by my house out of the blue five years later and apologized to me. I again had no words because I'm going, but you're, uh, how does that work? Okay, and he, out of five years later, he apologized and he really meant it. But then he went on, so we talked for about a half an hour and he went on to talk about a toxic environment that he worked in. And the company that he worked with, in order to get a raise, you have to work in this one department with all these toxic chemicals. And he said, I worked in there because I wanted the raise, but they didn't have the proper gloves and the chemicals seeped into my bloodstream and it ended up damaging my liver. But it was totally worth it because I got the raise and look at, you know, my family's doing so much better now. And the whole time I'm thinking, No, it's not worth it. It's not worth it to have poisonous chemicals seep into your body and damage your liver. It's not worth it at all. There will be times in all of our lives when we're going to find ourselves in toxic situations. Hopefully not physical one like my neighbor, but emotionally and spiritually toxic situations where this constant bombardment of negativity comes upon us and ends up seeping into our lives and damaging us at our core. It could be a work situation, a relationship, a living situation, or some other social circumstance. And if that's true in our lives, we have to ask ourselves, 
What is making this situation so toxic? What is draining the love and peace out of the room and replacing it with the toxicity of hatred and strife? In some cases, you won't have to look very far for the answer of that. You'll just have to look at yourself. In some cases, you're the problem, okay? The problem is you are draining the, the peace and love out of a situation. You're causing the situation to be toxic because, to put it bluntly, you've just been a total poopy head to the people around you for the last month or several months or year. You've been harsh, critical, selfish, or abusive, okay? And now it's soul-searching time. Now it's repenting time. Now it's asking for an, you know forgiveness time. And it might even be seeking counseling time because if you don't change, your life is is going to get really lonely really fast because people don't enjoy being around other people who cause toxicity to happen any more than I would enjoy working with poisonous chemicals, all right? The other possibility that it's not you that it's at fault, but it's the other person or persons involved in the situation that are at fault because they won't own their stuff. They won't apologize for their wrongdoings. They treat you bad on a daily basis and they don't even seem to care. Sometimes as Jesus followers, we're taught by some that it is our job as Christians to just stay in those toxic circumstances and take it. Because like the old saying says, love doesn't leave. Yeah, love doesn't leave, but it moves down the street all the time, okay? I found that true in my life because love creates healthy boundaries when it's necessary because it doesn't do anybody any good to stay in a toxic situation where slowly but surely the light and joy in your spirit are being extinguished. Look at what the Apostle Paul says about this in Romans chapter 12. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live in peace with everyone. Here's one of the greatest Jesus followers we've ever known. He's going, if it's possible, live in peace with everyone, which implies sometimes it's not possible, okay? Some situations are so bad, so damaging, so toxic that peace is not going to happen no matter how hard we try. When Jesus was sending out some of his closest friends on this preaching tour they were going to go on, he said the most unique thing to them. He said, listen, when you go to a certain town to preach the good news, this is what I want you to do. Find a house to stay in. Wasn't a lot of hotels back then. Find a house to stay in. And when you enter into it, say this to them, peace be with you. And if there's a person in that house that shares your peace, your peace will rest upon them. But if not, your peace will return to you. That's what he says. And that's such an important concept for us to grasp because the truth is this. We can't force people to love us. We can't force people to value us. We can't force people to be at peace with us because peace has always been a group thing. It requires a group effort. Some of you in this room have been trying so hard for so long to take a toxic situation and change it and make it healthy. And you and it, to no avail, it's not working. You're not a failure. In fact, your efforts are absolutely heroic, and I commend you. But the truth is this. Here's the reality of life. Some people are just determined to be miserable, and not only that, to make everybody's life around them miserable. Sometimes peace is not possible with these kind of people, at least not for now. Your attempts were heroic, but you have to realize peace takes a group effort. So, 
If you've pursued love and peace, if you've done all you can in a situation to rid it of its toxicity, including looking at your own life and making the corrections you need to make, and it's still toxic, then you have to ask yourself an incredibly difficult question. A question made famous by the band The Knack in the 1980s. Do I stay or do I go? That is the question. There are times when God is going to invite you to stay in a toxic situation only for a season, but he'll invite you to stay for a while. I want to read this verse again by the Apostle Paul out of the book of Philippians. And he says this, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Sometimes our suffering in the middle of a toxic circumstance can actually have a redemptive quality to it. People will watch us suffer. They'll watch how we respond to being treated badly by other people. They'll watch how we refuse to repay evil for evil, how we respond to mistreatment and toxicity with grace and compassion and mercy and forgiveness. And something amazing will happen. They'll be drawn to Jesus because of that, because they know the only explanation for our behavior is that we're motivated by the love of Jesus that dwells inside of us. It is an amazing thing. But at other times, Times, you won't be inv- invited by the Holy Spirit to stay in a toxic situation. You'll actually be invited by the Holy Spirit to exit a toxic situation. And in fact, your exiting might be just the jolt that other person or persons need in order to change their behavior because without you to target and to blame, they'll be forced to take ownership for their own behavior. Sometimes, and this will be hard to hear, it has been hard in my life, but God will whisper to your spirit, It's time to go. It's time to go. Stop giving them permission to be horrible by staying. It's time to go. This is where wisdom comes in. This is why we're doing a series on wisdom, because we need wisdom on how we can know, do I stay or do I go? This is how you'll know. You've got to hear God. You've got to hear God. You've got to pray and listen to him whisper the truth in your spirit. You've got to search the scriptures. You can hear God through the Bible, and you've got to talk to other people. Look at what um, chapter 15 in Proverbs verse 22 says. Plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors they succeed. And what that's saying is we can't make difficult decisions on our own. We've got to seek the wisdom of other people. You will know what to do. You'll know whether to stay or to go. You'll know what to do won't be an easy decision, but you'll know. In fact, as I'm speaking right now, you probably already know if you're in a toxic situation, you are just doubting your own ability to hear God's voice, and please don't do that. And if you're supposed to go, go in peace, knowing that the world needs the light and the joy that you've got. Don't let it be extinguished. So here's the truth. Sometimes you'll be asked to stay, at least for a season, in a toxic situation in order to be a light. At other times, God will ask you to exit a toxic situation in order to guard your light. Okay? Hope you get that. And here's the good news. I don't want to be just a total bummer boy today, okay? The good news is when you find yourself in healthy, whole, non-toxic environments, according to the scripture, and I found this to be true in my own life, it will be so wonderful, so joyful that you could be eating a plate of Brussels sprouts and it'll seem like a feast. 
And that's saying something, because those things are nasty, okay? Whenever we are served, and my wife insists on serving them every Thanksgiving and every feast we have, and I just pass them along, all right? But I can eat Brussels sprouts, and it'll seem like a feast when the people around me reciprocate my love and peace. Ah, so good. Now let's move on to a side of rebuke. Look at these verses out of Proverbs 15. Stern discipline awaits anyone who leaves the path, or stern correction. The one who hates correction will die. Now, that's a pretty blunt verse, right? But you've got to remember, in the wisdom writings, to die doesn't mean to physically die. It means to live less than your optimal life. It means to be kind of zombified in a soul level, to be the walking dead. That's what it's saying. You refuse rebuke and correction, you're going to die. You're going to live less than the life God wants for you. Now, let's move on to verse 31. Whoever heeds life-giving correction will be at home among the wise. And then verse 32. Those who disregard discipline, they despise themselves, but the one who heeds correction gains understanding. These Proverbs are about the word rebuke, which is a weird-sounding word, rebuke. We don't use it very much. We don't even hear it very much. And when you do hear it, you think, well, how can I rebuke when I've never buked in the first place, okay? (laughs) But rebuke simply means this. To reprimand and express sharp disapproval at someone's actions. Let me read that again. To reprimand and express sharp disapproval at someone's actions. For a non-confrontational person like me, that doesn't sound very fun at all, whether I'm the rebuker or the rebukee. But according to the verses we just read, rebuke is a good thing. It leads us into wisdom. It leads us into life and understanding. It's life-giving. Check out this verse out of the last book in the Bible, the verse of Revelation. Not Revelations, by the way. Revelation. A little pet peeve there. Okay. Those whom I love, this is God talking, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. So there's God saying, I love you. That's why I'm going to rebuke and correct you. Love and rebuke go together. They go together. But I got to warn you. Being rebuked is painful. The ancient desert fathers and mothers used to refer to being rebuked and corrected by God as compunction, which is a medical term that means to be pierced with a scalpel. That's what it means. It's that painful. And it is. Now, the problem with rebuke on a human level, though, it's often done wrong by most people. This is what will happen. A person will come to you and they'll unload a bunch of pent-up anger and rage on you and refer to it as correction. Oh, this is for your own good. They might even use that line. That kind of rebuke is painful and it's not life-giving. Look at, there's a lot of scriptures today, okay? I'm going to be on a roll here. Proverbs chapter 12. Let's read this. The words of the reckless pierce like swords, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. So when God rebukes, It's painful. It's like the piercing sensation of being pierced or cut with a scalpel, but it's life-giving. It's like having soul surgery done in your life. Rebuke done wrong is also painful, but it's not like being pierced with a scalpel. It's like being impaled by a sword. Every one of us in this room have had an experience where someone's harsh words have impaled us like a sword, and they thought they were helping us when literally they were killing us from the inside out. That's rebuke done wrong. And so with this in mind, I want to offer us some instruction. I think you'll find this really helpful. I did when I was studying it, okay? Here's what to do to do rebuke right, whether you're the rebuker or the rebukee. Let's start with being the rebuker. At times, 
Every single one of us in this room is going to be invited by God to rebuke somebody because we see someone we care for being involved in something that's damaging to them or to the people around them. So God will say, you got to correct them. you got to bring rebuke to them. Great, okay. How do we do it? It's so difficult. The first thing to keep in mind is this. If you're taking notes, write this down, okay. Because you don't want to avoid the rebuke, because to avoid rebuke, according to Revelation 3, is to avoid love, all right? First thing you do, embrace the awkwardness. I was reading an author the other day was describing the most awkward situation he could remember in his life, and it happened when he was 11 years old. He said, I was invited to a family reunion, I'm 11 years old, and all of a sudden a slow song played, and there was dancing going on, and I had to dance with my third stepmother a slow song when I'm 11 years old. He goes, it was the most awkward experience in my life. Slow dancing with your third stepmom, okay? There are so many awkward situations in this life. We'll all have them. And rebuking someone is one of those. Instead of ignoring that, the awkwardness, embrace the fact that it's awkward. There's a guy named Stefan Hoffman. He's written several books, and he is a therapist in the Boston, Massachusetts area, and he specifically targets people who struggle with feelings of awkwardness. He helps them to get over feeling so awkward about feeling awkward, if that makes sense. And he does it with some unusual exercises. He goes, people that have this paralyzing fear of feeling awkward, he makes them, the first thing he has them do, I want you to go to a local bookstore, a lot of mon poc bookstores in the Boston area. He goes, I want you to go to a local bookstore, go up to the proprietor and say this, I'd like to see every book you have on the subject of farting. That's what he makes them do. This is a professional counselor there. And he says it's so helpful to them because the moment instantly turns awkward as it would for you. Okay. And then they think, Wow, that was awkward, but I survived it. Maybe feeling awkward is not so bad. He also goes to a comedy show called Mortified, which they have up in Portland. You can go to this. Mortified is a traveling comedy show that goes around, and real live people, not comedians, get up on the stage, and they read excerpts from their diaries when they were in middle school or high school. Can you imagine how cringeworthy that is? And I've heard some of the excerpts, and it's like, I I can't believe they read that out loud in front of all these people. But it creates this amazing atmosphere in in the room. People are bonded together because everybody can relate to what is being shared. So the awkwardness ends up being a bonding agent. So when you rebuke someone, own your awkwardness. Tell them, oh, this is going to be difficult for me. Tell them you might even cry. I might cry. Okay, tell them that. Don't plan out your words like a well-rehearsed performance. No, fumble your way through them because your awkwardness is going to send a powerful message to them. It's going to send this message. Wow, this person's really struggling with this. They must really care about this and they must really care about me. Your awkwardness will end up bonding you with the very person you're going to rebuke. Second of all, Be gentle. Rebuke should always be done gently. Look what it says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. There you go, right there. The idea of rebuke is not to shame and demoralize someone so they leave your presence feeling like a mucus-covered troll that lives under a bridge. 
And that's what people do often. That is not the goal. The goal of rebuke is laid out in this verse, and it's to gently restore a person to health and wholeness. A good rebuker, in my mind, should be like a good phlebotanist. And a phlebotanist is, I don't know if you know what that means, they're the blood suckers, the people that draw blood from you in a clinic or at the hospital. I have had to give blood like four times this year for various reasons. I go to a guy out in Barger, and Mauricio and some of my friends go to him too. He is the man. He is the best phlebot... I can't even say that word. He's the best blood sucker I have ever experienced in my life. I can't watch my own blood be drawn because don't want to do that. And so I just turn my head. I go, I can't watch. And he goes, I'm done. I go... I didn't even know you started. He's that good. He's just, he's a miracle worker, okay? That's what a good rebuker should be like. So gentle, you don't even know that the rebuke really took place. It should be like that. And thirdly, rebuke yourself. If you're going to rebuke, rebuke yourself first. Look at Matthew chapter 7, verse 3 through 5. This is Jesus talking. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? Ooh, okay. And then verse 4, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your eye? And now verse 5, you hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. I'm a golfer and um, one week ago, a week ago yesterday, so two Saturdays ago, I went out to hit balls at Fiddler's Green. And if you go to their driving range, your practice range, you're in these little stalls separated by wood. And I went clear down to the end because I like to be by myself and just work on my game and just take my time. And then right next to me came a guy probably in his mid-20s, was the worst golfer I've ever seen in my entire life. And some of you are going, Yo, you haven't seen me. I don't know how you could be worse than what he was doing. But he was also the most aggressive golfer, which made him the worst golfer I've ever seen. He swung so hard, I actually was afraid for my life, like when he was swinging. So I stopped hitting balls and I just backed away. I just backed away and watched him because I thought he was going to throw the club. And he swung so hard, but he only hit the top like millimeter of the ball. So he's swinging like he's going to hit it a mile. And the ball rolled off the mat and went about five feet. And this happened repeatedly. And then he stopped and his girlfriend or fiance or wife stepped into the stall and I go, oh, here it goes. Here it goes. But I go, she can't be worse. She was, okay, but she was close anyways. But I watched what I, I couldn't even watch her swing because I was watching him. He stood behind her and gave her instructions. And I I was just, I, I wanted to interrupt and say, don't ever teach someone how to golf unless you actually know how to golf. Correct your own golf swing first. Your ball's right there. She actually hit it further than you did. You should listen to her. It's the same. Likewise, before you rebuke somebody, rebuke yourself first. Examine your own life and make any corrections you need to make because then and only then will you be humble enough to actually be good at rebuking. And lastly, and this is an important one, Don't rebuke somebody on social media. Can we just all say, stop doing that? Stop it. I'm so tired of that. I want to rebuke all those people, okay? Just don't do that. And don't don't send an anonymous letter either. Sorry, my throat's getting a little dry. As a pastor, I get rebuked quite a little bit. It's great, okay? 
And I actually don't mind it because it is life-giving and helpful. But if you're going to rebuke me, don't send an anonymous letter with no return address because rebuke, even though what you said in the letter was good, if it was one of you, I don't know, what you said in the letter is good and I responded to it, rebuke is about relationship, right? It's about restoring a person to the right path and that always includes good relationships with others. So if you're going to rebuke, don't do it anonymously. Don't take a pot shot on social media or a letter with no reference, okay? Now about being the rebukee. Me. First of all, when you're being rebuked, when you're the rebukee, know that you're human. Being rebuked doesn't mean you're a horrible person. It means you are human because everyone gets off the right path at times. Everybody has areas of blindness. I remember I'm reading a story about these blind slalom skiers, and I ski, but I'm not fast. I don't go over jumps. I don't try to race. I just swoosh my way down. If I fall at all during the day, it's a bad day skiing. Usually I don't fall at all because I just don't go that fast. It's more about beauty and snow and, and survival. Okay, so I'm reading about these slalom skiers who are blind, who are blind, completely blind, and they race. And I go, how could they do that? And I read through the story. They do it because professional skiers go right behind them and direct them every moment of the way. Turn left here, go straight here. There's a jump here, turn right here. It's amazing. That's what it's like in our life. We need people who love us enough to come along beside us and go, oh, don't go that way. Don't go that way. That's not going to, that's going to go over a cliff. That's going to be bad. Go this way instead. To be rebuked doesn't mean you're horrible. It means you're human. Secondly, rebuke stings. I mentioned that a little earlier. I want to reiterate it because when you're the rebukey, all you can think usually is, ooh, this hurts. And it does. It does. I was going through counseling for a particular issue in my life about 20 years ago, and I was paying for it because you, you pay for counselors that are usually not free. And I was paying for it, and I was describing a really difficult situation I was in with some people, and I felt like they'd mistreated me, and then I described my actions back to them. And I'm going to use a bad word here, so sorry, but I'm just going to tell you what the counselor said to me. So she stopped me in the middle of our discussion, and it was very emotional. And she said, so let me reflect back to you and make sure I've got this straight. So these people said this to you and did this to you. And I said, "Uh uh-huh. And you responded by being an asshole. Do I got that straight? (laughs) That's what she said. And I thought, wow, that hurts a little bit. And it hurts doubly because I'm paying you quite a bit of money to say that to me. But I stood there kind of in stunned silence or sat there. I wasn't standing. And I thought, oh, you're right. It was an area of blindness. I actually was being a glass bowl or whatever you want to call it. I was being a jerk to these people. Wow, you're right. And so it stung, but it was a good kind of sting because it had a healing effect in my life. It was like a tetanus shot. So um, yeah, being rebuked stings, but it's worth it if it's done right. Third thing, if you're the rebukey, stop talking, okay? There is nothing, the worst thing you can do when someone's rebuking and correcting you is to interrupt them. And that happens all the time because you're feeling defensive. Don't interrupt them because it tells them you're not really listening. And also, excuse me, these are wonderful. It tells them that you're not listening, but it also means that you're going to have to get rebuked for the same thing a little bit later in your life. So just stop talking. Get it right the first time. And lastly, rejoice 
When you're being corrected, rejoice because, yeah, it's difficult, but it leads to life and restoration and wisdom. If you're not being rebuked, it does not mean you're perfect. It means you have surrounded yourself with a bunch of kiss-ups in your life that are too afraid of the consequences to tell you the truth. You're like the emperor with no clothes, parading around in your sin and folly and selfishness and narcissism for all to see. The problem isn't being rebuked. The problem is when you're never rebuked. And in fact, the first thing you should do if that's the circumstances of your life is rebuke all the people who haven't been rebuking you. That's a lot of rebuking going on there, okay? I hope this was helpful to you. Let me pray for us because I'm losing my voice. I just can't go much longer, okay?